Lord, you are indeed the King of kings. And Lord, we will one day, we know that one day that every knee will bow. That we long for the day as a church of Christ, as a bride of Christ as well. That we'll be able to experience true fellowship with you. But Lord, you are our King and the King of Kings. And may we, may we continue to live knowing that you are the God that, is, that watches over our lives, that you're in control of all things, and you are a God that is worth trusting in, worth depending and relying on. May you continue to help us to not be worried about the things of the world or anything that this world has to offer when it comes to threats, because we know that no matter what goes on in this world, no matter what rulers and governments and presidents, whatever they place on us, we know that ultimately you are the king that we worship. And may we continue to find our joy and our peace in you. Be with us this morning. Allow us to humbly submit ourselves to your word, even if it may not be the easiest thing in our life. We know that you will sustain us through trials and tribulations, especially if it is for your name. Be with us this morning. Encourage us with your word and, and cause us to be conformed more to the example and the likeness of your son. As in these things we pray. Amen. Please be seated. If you have your Bibles, please open it to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 21 to 25. Before I start, I uh, want to just acknowledge, just let you guys know that this is James' last Sunday with us, and it was very fitting that the very last Sunday he decided to serve and leading us in worship, and it's been a joy to be able to see James' growth um, from just playing in the background to leading. Uh, we're going to miss you, James. And if you haven't said your goodbyes yet, today is the last day to do so. At least the last day he will join us. But I know he'll be back uh, you know, to visit here and there. But we're going to miss having James around to lead us in worship. First Peter chapter 2, verse 21 to 25. I'm going to read the text. We'll get into the sermon. First Peter chapter 2, verse 21 to 25. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but, keeping, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live, live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep. And now you have returned to the shepherd and guardians of your souls. You and I cannot escape the examples in our lives. All of us have people that have influenced us, that have shaped our thinking that have, last, that have gave us, that leave lasting imprints in our lives. And some Christians model after other Christians, but all Christians 
model after our Lord Jesus Christ. And the mentors that we have, the examples that we have in our lives, they may help us with things like evangelism or discipleship or teaching or parenting or how to work for the glory of God or being a faithful spouse. Whatever areas in your life that you can think of, there is bound to be someone in your life that is example to you. Following Jesus Christ is going to be the most vital part of being a Christian. It's what it means to be a Christian. It means to imitate Jesus Christ, to follow him, to look like Christ. And we need to live moment by moment with a spiritual dependency on Jesus Christ. When we think about this popular phrase, what would Jesus do? Oftentimes that is true, but we, I think the culture, and especially with our emotions, we kind of warp that idea that we think we know what Jesus would do. But the reality of that phrase can be changed or should be changed to, what would Jesus do according to Scripture? Because God's Word gives us an example of the life of Jesus Christ that allows us to model our life after Him, to look to Him, and to follow Him. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Paul writes, Indeed, all who desire to live Godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And it's telling because even Jesus in the book of Matthew tells us that if you want to follow me, people are going to want to persecute you because they hate me. People that want to kill you, they want to do that because they hated me first. Following Jesus Christ will at some point lead to some level of persecution, of discomfort, and for the believers at the time, and in a lot of ways even to the believers now in our day, suffering is a normal part of the Christian life. Culturally, we can see that things are heating up against Christians. We're often labeled a certain way because of our views about gender and sexuality. We're viewed a certain way in the way we think of marriage. We're viewed a certain way when we think about babies in the womb. And it was because of that, as the world becomes darker and darker, they look at Christians with a level of suspicion. And understand that this is the life of the audience that Peter was writing to. The people that were in the, the, the church that Peter's writing to, all the people that are scattered throughout Asia Minor, they were scattered there because the Roman government wanted to disassemble dis, 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 disassembled the Christian community by scattering them all over. And that made people distrust them. They were suspicious of them because oftentimes those groups of people that would be spread out all over is because they did something wrong. And for the unsuspecting eye, they might think, what are these Christians doing that was so bad that allowed this type of treatment? It'd be like the Japanese during right after Pearl Harbor or Middle Easterns after 9-11. The Christians were viewed with suspicion and they treated them poorly because of their faith. In a lot of ways, Christian, being a Christian is going to be an uneasy life. And if you look at the world around us, especially in San Francisco, that will be so with us as well in a not-so-distant future. The people then, and maybe for us soon, they suffer for their faith because of who Jesus Christ is. Some of you guys know that I'm preaching through my doctoral project, 
And I tried to answer this question, why does San Francisco need San Francisco Bible Church? It's not to say, again, that there aren't other gospel-preaching churches out there here in the city, but for us here, why did God place us here? What is the point? How is it that God has kept us here in, in San Francisco for almost 60 years? It's because we are here for this one purpose, and that is to win people to Christ. The reason why we are here, the reason why the Lord has stationed us here, this church in this city, is to try to win people to Christ. A few weeks ago, when we started the series, I talked about how the, the sojourner has a charge, that God has given us this, this promise of eternal life, and that is the hope that believers have, that we want to go and tell other people about it. We know that this world desperately tries to find meaning and purpose, and the Bible gives us those answers so that we go and tell people of the hope that is only found in Jesus Christ. Then it talked about the sojourner's life and how believers are called to be holy because our God is holy. We're called to be obedient children because we are now born again. We're adopted into his family. And if we're part of God's family, the way that we live should reflect our Father. Then we talk about the, the war that Christians go over, about these internal sins that they're struggling with, that they have to put aside all slander and malice and hypocrisy, envy and deceit in order for us to fulfill our spiritual disciplines and, and, and learning about God's Word so that we can grow in Christ-likeness. And last week we talked about the behavior of the Christian, how before kings and before your masters or people that you work under, that in, even in those two spheres, there is a way in which Christians are supposed to interact with them and even submit to them that honors the Lord. And yes, there may be unreasonable leaders, there might be unreasonable bosses, but what glorifies God is our willingness to submit to those people because we understand God is sovereign. He placed those people above us to rule over us, to be our boss, to be our managers. Whatever it may be, the Lord placed those people in our lives because he deems it best for us. And then in those circumstances, when we humbly submit to them, we testify that we trust in the Lord and that God is ultimately the one that these people have to give an account to as well as us as workers or as citizens in this world. Now I want to answer the same question again. How, why does SF need SF Bible? Is because we want to testify and tell people about Jesus Christ, but we do it in terms of suffering. We show people that it, despite the fact that they may put us under the pressure, under the ringer, that we will still be joyful because of the example that we have in Jesus Christ. This is not about. This is not just being a light, uh, but or trying to cause suffering for yourself. Rather, when we suffer in life, it's because of our faith, and we have an example in Jesus Christ. The greatest test for you and I, before a non-believer, as they watch us, is how we handle suffering, because suffering oftentimes reveals what is truly in your heart. And every genuine believer, when they claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, when they are under persecution, when they're under trials and tribulation, the thing that should be evident to the world is that this person suffers differently from the world. Because our faith is not of this world. You and I may not suffer in the same ways that other Christians suffer, but all Christians are going to struggle at some point in your life. Some of you are struggling in your marriage because you are married to a non-believer. Some of you are suffering because you are, your parents are non-believers. 
Some of you are suffering when your kids are non-believers, or you're the only believer at work. Wherever it may be, whatever moments you feel suffering because of your faith, Christ gives us an example and how we can honor the Lord through it. Suffering can come from anywhere and at any time. Yes, Scripture commands us to be faithful as we suffer in the name of Christ Jesus. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, then, Peter, and here, they all are writing knowing that suffering is a normal part of the Christian life. Look at verse 21. It says, For you have been called for this purpose. This points back to those that are under government and under masters, and, and they can be un, unjust or unreasonable. These are people in both camps that are under the heat of, uh, of, of, of persecution, and they need to have a heart of submission. And the next section talks about the family and what is the home is supposed to be like. But here, in the flow and the logic of, of 1 Peter 2 here, he's talking about those that are suffering because the government is, not, is mistreating them, or the people that are masters are mistreating them. This is that you have been called for this purpose, that God has brought you in this situation and in this circumstance, is that you have been returned. For this you have been, since, uh, sorry, verse 24, you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you. You've been called by this. However you translate, some translate has you have been returned, others have you have been called. But the point is that God did this to you. When you think about why is my boss the way that he is? Or why are the masters or the government the way that they are? Ultimately, we could find it in that it is God's sovereign hand. He placed those people in your lives and he placed you in their, under their authority. This, this passage is about how Jesus gives us an example on, on under those authorities and why. Because we know that even Jesus Christ, he came into the world because it was part of God's will, God the Father's will as well. He came, this is the will that Jesus and the, the Trinity beforehand had thought that this is how mankind will be redeemed. And Jesus came into the world fulfilling the, uh, the plan of the Trinity. God intends us to suffer for him. And unjust suffering is not just some sort of cosmic accident. Following Jesus is going to be tough, and we are called for this purpose. In the last several years, this phrase that keeps coming up is deconstruction. They're, people are deconstructing their faith. And they have a way to make it very flowery and sound very legitimate. But really, the reason why people deconstruct their faith is because they are under some pressure from the world, some pressure from their peers or people around them that say, you still hold to this view about the Bible? You still think in this way that's so antiquated? And out of that fear of man, they decide to just let go of Christianity altogether. Eventually, these individuals, in a lot of ways, you can just call them what they are. They are just cowards. They turn from the Lord, and they become enemies of the church. Now, this doesn't mean that we hate them or despise them, but we understand 
that there are people that are going to be antagonistic towards us, that were at one point people that we went to church with. You know, there's two reasons why you don't suffer for Christ. One of them is that your world is too Christian. And what I mean by that is that you surround yourself with Christians, and that's good. You should have other people in your life that are of the faith that you can encourage and that can be encouraged by, that you can sharpen. But some people, the reason why you only surround yourself with Christians is because you're too scared to deal with those that are against you. You don't want to engage people with the gospel. You don't want to defend the faith. You're hiding behind other Christians, hoping that you don't have to talk with non-believers. But in reality, we know that's a failure to fulfill Matthew 28. The reason why we are here is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. That means you're going to have to get out of your comfort zone. This is the kind of Christian that Jesus speaks against, about being a light and then putting a basket over that light. We are called to be in the world, but not of the world. So if your world is too Christian, you need to, that's the reason why you're not suffering, because you only hang out with believers. And I'm not saying that you should not hang out with, non, with believers only. I'm just saying that when you look at your life, you need to be missional. You need to think about why you are here and be praying for those non-believers around you or that the God will give you opportunity to go and share the gospel with those who do not know Jesus Christ. One reason why you might suffer is because your world is too Christian or your Christian is too worldly. Your Christianity is too worldly. You, in the name of Christ, do things like the world. You look so much like the world, but do so while proclaiming to be a follower of Jesus Christ. The non-believers around you look at you and they can clearly tell that you don't care about Christianity and they don't care because you don't care. The unbelieving world is not going to confront you on any sin because if you don't take your faith seriously, why should they? It is easy for us to trust in the sovereignty of God when things are going well, but that also means that we need to, during times of suffering as well. So when you think about your life, is the reason why you're not suffering because your world is just filled with Christians and that's it? Or your Christianity is too much like the world and you don't want to suffer for the faith? And this is why we're called here. We're called here to represent Christ and that may lead to suffering. Notice it says, since Christ also suffered for you. This is the purpose that Christ had to come to suffer. He suffered for us. We get eternal life because of what Christ has done on the cross. He suffered on our behalf. He provided a way for us to escape hell. He is the one that washed away all the gossip. He is the one that washed away with all the lust, all the greed, all the anger, all the jealousy, all the hate, all the lies and every single sin that we commit. He washed it away with his blood. And every single one of us in this room deserve to suffer for our sin, but yet God does not do that because Christ suffered on our behalf. He suffered for us because he loves us. He, we rebelled against him, yet he still died for us. Notice it said, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his step. This word leaving you is not speaking of just departing and leaving you abandoned with no resources. This word leaving you is, is like he's leave, he left something behind for you as he departs from you. So it's not just like, think of a parent when they are dropping off their kid at college. They, yes, they depart from them, but they sometimes will give them some money or give them some, you know, if you're Asian, then maybe like a rice cooker or different things so that the kid can sustain and live on their own. Jesus did that through the word of God. 
He not only gave us the Word of God, He gave us the Holy Spirit that indwells in the believers. And He gives us an example and gives us the ability to follow in His footsteps. It is something that He has prepared for us. And the reason why we have God's Word, both the Old and the New Testament, is because it gives us examples. It gives us ultimately example of God's faithfulness throughout every single trial in life. The gospel teaches us our need for a Savior because of the holiness and the moral purity of Jesus Christ. We do not deserve eternal life, but our, our Savior provides a way so that we escape the judgment that is to come. It is all of God's grace. The gospel changes you. If Jesus is willing to go through all of this, both in this life, in terms of just suffering and dying on the cross for us, if Jesus is willing to go through all of that and did not fight back, if he is willing to suffer without complaint, without grumbling or complaining, or without resisting, and that is our example, then we should follow likewise as well. If he was going to go through the wrath of God on our behalf without grumbling or fighting back, then we look at our life and we think, yeah, my boss, yes, as unreasonable as he is, is very a petty thing. Yes, my spouse might not be treating me like I want them to, but that suffering, it's so small compared to what Christ has done for me. And it applies to every area of your life, whether you are a single person, whether you are married, whether you're parents, whether you are students, whether you're working. Any form of suffering pales in comparison to the suffering that Christ died, what Christ did for us. Is that the example for you to follow? This word example here, it's what I know some of you parents, you probably have their kids doing now. It's, it's like tracing. You know how when you try to teach your kid how to write letters, there's like these little dots, and you just will connect the dots, and then afterward it forms into a word or a letter? Well, that's what this word means. That when we connect the dots in our life, we're supposed to eventually look like Jesus Christ. We look to Jesus. He gives us this perfect example or pattern that we have to follow. Peter is saying this, that we have a sample, we have a template, we have a model in Christ Jesus. We are to suffer in the same manner in the way that Jesus suffered. The next time someone mistreats you, the next time someone hurts you or, or, or talks to you in a, in a derogatory way or harms you in any way, know that Jesus Christ is our example on how to respond. Jesus is a pattern that we follow. Do exactly what Jesus did according to Scripture. No one suffered quite like Christ, and we need to pattern our lives after Jesus Christ. The purpose is to imitate him and to follow him. Christ is the example on how to suffer well. But in order for it to suffer well, we need to do as he did. It says here, in his footsteps. It's literally just following his steps. Some of you know what it's like when you're in the snow, when you don't know where to go. You usually just follow someone who who've gone to before. You can see foot, footprints there, and you follow those things because you know, okay, that they at least haven't walked into a hole. Or even if they did, you can see, okay, there's footsteps and there's a hole. Don't go there. Go back. But you follow these footsteps. And Jesus has that. In our, he is like that for us in our life. Through looking at the scriptures, we see a model of someone that suffered well, which leads to our proposition of our message or lesson. If we want to be a faithful sojourner, we need to model our lives after Christ, particularly when it comes to suffering. We have five examples of Christ's suffering that we need to know so we can suffer to the glory of God. That we can five examples that Christ has given us. First, you notice Christ suffered without complaining. Christ suffered without complaining. This is found in verse 22. In fact, from verse 22 to 25, this is, a lot of things are here that are, are actually from 
parallel from Isaiah 53, which I'll make some reference to, but here in verse 22, it reads, Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. He doesn't quote all of Isaiah 53 exactly, but he gives the sense and the idea of the chapter here. Peter here looks to God's word for comfort in light of suffering. He looks to Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, the one that has been prophesied all those years ago. He looks to that Savior in light of, script, in light of all the suffering that the believer is going through. He reminds them of what this Savior went through because it is prophesied all the way back in the Old Testament. And this is just a quick reminder for all of us that every single one of us must run to God's word when we're struggling. When we're struggling in life, we need to go to God's word for comfort. Jesus gives us a perfect example on how to suffer well. And then like us that deserve every ounce of suffering, Christ did not deserve any suffering because he was perfect. Christ suffered without sinning. Jesus lived his entire life without any incident of sin in his life. Jesus never sinned but suffered for sinners. Jesus fulfilled Isaiah 53 perfectly. He was without sin. And we know this word sin means to miss the mark. It's a target. And you have to think Jesus did not miss the mark in the way that he thought about things, in the way that he spoke, in every single action. But yet he suffered as if he missed the mark consistently in his life. It says that there was, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. This word deceit is, is this idea of murmuring or complaining or grumbling. Jesus was tried, and he did not complain. There was no bargaining with the people that were persecuting him. There was no complaining or trying to make some sort of petition. There was nothing wrong that was found in his speech when he was suffering for our sin. In Isaiah 53, verse 9, it talks about how a sheep will go and get slaughtered. And, and when it's, when the, in Isaiah 53, when it talks about the sheep that goes and gets slaughtered, it, a sheep doesn't know that it's going to get killed. It just follows wherever it needs to go. But Jesus understood what was going to happen to him. That's why he was crying, why he was praying to the Lord if there was any other way that let it be, but not his will, but the Father's will be done. He understood that this was God's will. And yet he suffered silently. But why is this so important? What is it about the mouth that is so important? Because in James chapter 3, it tells us that if you can control your tongue, then you are perfect. And Jesus controlled his tongue when he was being lashed, when he was being spat on, when he was being punched. When he was suffering, he did not complain. He suffered silently without complaints. We just look up at our own lives. Whenever we suffer just a little bit in our lives, do we find ourselves grumbling and complaining? Because complaining is a very serious sin. We, are, we went through the book of Numbers several years or months ago, or maybe a few years ago, and that whole book was, was chronicling the life of Israel, that first generation, how they just kept complaining and complaining against the Lord. They complained against the Lord, and they were punished for it. Later on, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9 said, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sin. Be hospitable to one another, one another without complaint. Complaining is a serious sin. And all complaints are not against your coworkers, your manager, your spouse, your kids, your classmates, or your managers, because all complaints ultimately is against God. You're saying, I don't trust you, God. I don't like what I'm going through, and you are wrong for putting me here. God is the one that placed you in this circumstance, 
and he expects you to trust him through it. Really, when we complain, it shows a lack of trust in the Lord in those moments. So are there moments in your life or situations that you realize, like, I am prone to complain in this circumstance? I know in my life that is certainly so. And sojourners, as all of us here as believers, as sojourners of the Lord, whenever we suffer, no matter how big or small, we must go through those situations without grumbling or complaining. If, you, if your silence during those times when you're suffering and, those, and the world watches you, it speaks volumes of the value of Jesus Christ. When you suffer without complaining, you show the world who is truly in control. It's not you. You are not in control of the situation. Ultimately, you trust that God is the one that is in control. Not only did Jesus suffer without complaining, but Jesus suffered without retaliating. Continuing on in verse 23, it said, And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. This word revile means to expose someone as a spectacle, that you're trying to do something or say something to them to reveal what's going on with what they, who they truly are. And the mob was trying to expose Jesus. They thought that if they put him enough through enough pain and suffering that he will recant the fact that he is the son of God. Uh, they, they were trying to mock him. That's why they put the thorn of crown on his head so that they can say, oh, you call, you call yourself a king? Well, let's see, and let's test that. They put a robe on him uh, even after he was bloodied and beaten so that they can make a joke at him. They're trying to revile him. They're trying to expose him. But yet, ironically, as they're doing this, they actually show the fact that he truly is the promised Messiah. He truly is the God that the Scripture promised. He truly is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Our culture loves to clap back against people for everything. We feel like we deserve better, so we write a review. Right? That's why there's things like Yelp and, and you know, Uber Eats and Airbnb, why they have this comment section and star ratings. They do, a lot of times when, we, when, we, when people put those things in there, it's because they're complaining. Right? This person drove too slow. This person drove too fast. This person smelled funny. Or this Airbnb was this nice or not. And really, these reviews are just polished retaliations. Because right? at the end, you want this person to not have a job. You want this business to close down. At the heart of every comment is really a complaint. It is heart that is bent on revenge. There are petty, these are all petty things if we can't respond rightly. In these areas, how will we respond when we're suffering for Christ, for eternal things, for things that actually matter? How will you respond if we're to suffer for our faith? As sojourners of Christ, there is no need to retaliate because God knows what you're going through. He is with us. He'll never leave us or forsake us. When we're suffering, we know that that is a fulfillment of what Jesus said about suffering for him, but we're not alone in our suffering. God is not blind to our suffering. He's not blind to the suffering of his own children. Either the injustice is done to us will be forgiven at the cross, meaning that person will come to saving faith. The people that hurt us, they might come to saving faith, or they keep persecuting us, and God will deal with them in hell for all of eternity. There is no need to retaliate but rather, we need to keep praying and trusting, and trusting our lives to the Lord. Peter, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43, 
Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 to 45, it said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that, it, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, who causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. We see here God's command to love those that hate you, to pray for those that make life miserable for you. Because God himself does that too. He gives a common grace to both believers and unbelievers, the righteous and the unrighteous. And if we're to pattern our lives after our Savior, we must be willing to pray for those who hurt us, to even do good to those that cause us harm. But if we retaliate, we fight back, we say and we tell the world that we don't even believe what the Bible has to say about trusting in him. That there must be some area of our life where God doesn't see it. We need to deal with this ourselves. We know that vengeance belongs to the Lord. And when we are retaliating, we are showing a lack of faith in our Lord. So not only did Jesus suffer without complaints or suffer without retaliating, third example that Christ, that he suffered without threatening. Christ suffered without threatening. Look at verse 23 again. While suffering, he uttered no threats. He did not threaten those people that were hurting him. There was no threats whatsoever. If if Christ wanted to, he could have had a whole legion of angels to cover for him when he was getting flogged. But he did not threaten them. Jesus did no such thing. When Jesus taught the Beatitudes and he told them to turn the other cheek, you understand that Jesus actually did that. He lived up to the things that he taught. He didn't threaten those that were killing him. He suffered. Instead, he uttered no threats. He prayed for them. He even asked that the Lord forgave these people, that the Lord will forgive these people because they did not know what they were doing. When someone mistreats you in any circumstance, do you, what is your first reaction when people mistreat you? Do you think of some sort of comeback or oh, I'm going to get this person? Or do you utter some sort of threat? Like, if you do this to me, I'm going to do this to you. When you are at home and you're taking care of a, a family member and, they, and you're constantly sacrificing for them, instead of doing joyfully, patiently, do you try to emotionally blackmail them by threatening to leave? Because that is a threat. When you're at your work and your boss makes some very terrible decision that causes you to work longer hours or causes your co-workers to have to stay uh, longer together, do you threaten to quit? Because that is a threat. When you and your spouse are going through an argument, instead of lovingly and patiently working through those conflicts, do you bring up divorce unless you get your way? Because that is a threat. All of us, if we were to be completely honest with ourselves, We'll do whatever we can to, let, to make the situation go our way, even if it means putting ultimatums in the lives of others. If you do this, then I will do this. That is a threat. And Jesus never threatened those that were hurting him. And you need to think about your own life. No matter how many people hurt you, how close they are or how far they are, people that you care about or they don't care about, whoever hurts you, your natural response should not be to threaten them. We need to respond to unjust hurt like how Jesus responds to unjust hurt. We need to suffer like Jesus Christ. And as soldiers in a world that loves to threaten other people, to try to find ways to cancel people, your silence and persecution, again, speaks volumes about who you place your trust. 
when you don't threaten people or hurt them, you show the world that you believe you believe you truly do believe that vengeance belongs to the Lord. But when you threaten them, it shows a lack of faith in God. Not only did Christ suffer without complaining or retaliating or threatening, but he also suffered without doubting. He suffered without doubting. Look at verse 23. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Entrusting here is this continual giving himself up over to the Lord. Every time there was another form of suffering or pain, no matter what it was, Christ kept entrusting his life to the hand of his heavenly Father. Jesus continued to put his own life in the hand of God. It's not focusing on his own feelings or trying to make things right. Rather, he just kept trusting the Lord in all circumstances. It is remarkable that Jesus, God the Son, kept entrusting himself to God the Father. Remember that right before this, in this context of this book here, he's talking about submitting to terrible rulers and submitting to terrible masters. That in those circumstances, you need to continue to entrust yourselves to the Lord. How easy it is for us to often try to justify our doubt in God by trying to take matters into our own hands. Why do we do this? Again, at, at the heart of it is that we don't trust God. We don't trust him, so we want to find a way out. Now, can this describe you? You see crime in our city, and the government chooses not to do anything. Our natural response is to say, this is injustice. And we complain, or we are doubtful if the Lord can really do anything about it. How you respond to things in the world, especially those that, that don't know the Lord, when they see you continue entrusting your life to the Lord, all the things that are, that are going wrong, it shows them that you have a peace that they don't have. They want peace by taking things in their hand, but they can't do anything about it. But what do you have that they don't? And this is that we trust in the Lord. Often we go to passages like Romans 8.28, that God causes all things for our good and for his glory. And that's true, but we don't believe that when it comes to things that make us really uncomfortable. We love... To, uh, to, to quote that verse to other people, but when it comes to areas on our, in our life where it makes it really difficult, suddenly that verse goes out the window. In those moments when you're suffering, whether it's just, especially when it's unjustly, think of Christ. Christ kept entrusting his life to the Father, and so should, I, so should you and I. Our life is always going to be an attempt to trace our life to look like Jesus Christ. So suffer without doubting. Not only did Christ suffer without complaints, retaliating, threatening, or doubting, but Christ suffered self, selflessly, or without selfishness. Christ suffered without selfishness. Verse 24, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live righteously, for by his wounds you were healed. This is emphatic here. Jesus Christ did this to himself for us. He voluntarily suffered, and he did not fight back so that we can have saving faith. This word bore here is the idea of carrying the weight. We deserve to carry the full weight of God's wrath, but instead, Christ bore it for us. This is a reference from Isaiah 53, verse 4. He did this because it was the Father's will to crush him, to crush Christ, because the wrath of God, because sin needs to be paid for, and that's finally paid for in the life of Jesus Christ. Out of a love for us, he's willing to bear the wrath of God on our behalf. 
Have you ever been blamed for something that you didn't do? Have you ever had siblings that did something wrong and your parents punished you for it? Have you had coworkers that slacked off at work and you have to do overtime because of their incompetency? Have you had a classmate that dragged down your grade because he or she did not do their work and, dragged, and you did everything, but that person's that weak link messed up your grade? Have your spouse ever been mad at you for something the kids have done? Whatever mistreatment or unfairness that you feel because of what something, something someone else did, understand that this is what our Savior did. He did it in an infinite magnitude because it pertains to not just our sin individually, but the sin of the world. It is our sin that nailed him to the cross. He took the blame. He took the scourging. He took the punishment. He took the wrath. He took the pain for us. He died a physical and literal death on our behalf. He wasn't thinking about himself, but he was thinking primarily about the will of the Father and the glory of God, but he also thought about you and I here today. Jesus gave us perfection and took our took on our imperfection. This is what we call the great exchange, the righteous robe for his righteous robe for our stained, sin-filled, stained garments. But if if it but if, if it doesn't stop there, he also gave us the ability to live and to pursue righteousness. Notice that so that we might die to sin and live in righteous live to righteousness. The result of his sacrificial death is that now we can finally live in a such a way that is pleasing to the Lord. The Lord said that he, our Lord Jesus Christ said that he has to die on our, on, our, on our behalf, but not only that, he has to go away so the Holy Spirit could be part of us. Everything that he does is ultimately for God's glory, but it benefits other people. He wasn't strictly thinking about himself. He thought about his people. He cared about us, and he found a way for us to live in a way that is pleasing to him. There's an actual change in your life because of what Jesus Christ has done. It's not just forgiveness of sin, but in order, he also died so that we can transform us, so we could die to our sin. Jesus didn't die for the guilt of sin, but death to sin itself. This word die here, it's very unique, because we've seen this word show up throughout the, all of Scripture, but this word here is different from the rest of the New Testament. It's a kind of word that only, is actually this word here in English, yeah, we use the word death and die throughout the New Testament, but this word here, it, it means like dearly departed. It, it's it's this word that's, it's not just death to something, but it's, it's to depart from it. Something that's dead and then you flee from it. What Peter's trying to emphasize here is not, it's, it's not just that we die to ourselves, but we remove ourselves from our dead corpse. That we're, we're far from what we were. We were living a certain way, but because of what Christ has done, we die to our old selves and we pursue a better place. And that place is called righteousness. Jesus died so that you can depart from your sin and go missing from sin and go towards Christ-likeness, to go towards righteousness. This is both a positive and negative. In terms of a negative is put off sin and positive put on Christ. That's what this word die is. You, you die to your old self. You leave that behind. You live a different life. This is what 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 tells us, that by this we know we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. You can't say that you love Jesus and don't model your life after Christ. You need to follow him. That includes not fighting back against those that hurt you. What excuses do you make to not follow Christ's example? The reality is that there should be no excuse. Are you still attached to your old sins or, you, or have you left them behind? 
To die to sin means to leave it behind. And this is why and how we suffer selflessly. Christ died so that we can obey him. He blessed us so we can finally live righteously. Christ suffered. Uh, he, su- he was suffering and he blessed those that caused him pain. Remember at the very end when Christ was finally killed on the cross, there was that one Roman centurion that believed. And there were so many countless others that believed after Christ died that he, his death was a blessing for all of humanity. Notice that Christ has this impact in our lives. It says, it says here that at the end of verse 24, by his wounds you were healed. This is again from Isaiah 53. Jesus healed us spiritually. It is by his wounds that we're healed. This is what Jesus accomplished for you and I. This is something that has happened in the past with, that impacts us in the present with ongoing effects into eternity. Your spiritual disease is now finally cured. Your soul is forgiven. His wounds made your soul healed. You get paradise while he gets punishment. We get salvation while he gets suffering. Now, is that fair? It is not fair. If Christ's example doesn't motivate, motivate you to live for Christ, then the question should be, do you even know Jesus Christ? Have you truly died to your old self and put on Christ's likeness if you are always complaining and grumbling about suffering in your life? We were all separated at one point from the Lord, but through his grace and love, we're now brought to him because of a selfless act. And we should want to do the same as well, that we suffer without selfishness. Look at verse 25, where you were continually straying like sheep. This was our lives before we came to saving faith. Continuing straying is like this idea of just constantly moving towards sin. Before we were saved, we just kept running towards sin. It said we were like sheep. Sheep are not smart creatures, and neither are we. Sheep will just do the same things over and over again, even though it's like it's harmful for them. They'll keep doing it. Sheep are also very disobedient. I mean, that's why shepherds have to keep guarding them so much, because they don't listen to the shepherd all the time. Sheep also bite back. You try to feed them, they'll bite you. This was our condition before we were saved. We were all dumb, disobedient, and we like to devour our leaders. Sheep are also very needy. There's no way for them to even know where to find grass or water. They need a guide. Yet this is what Peter is saying, that we were like this, but our shepherd brought us. He's now not only brought us back and protecting us, but he's feeding us as well. We couldn't help ourselves when it came to our old nature, but notice, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your soul. This is a contrast between what you and I were to what we are now. There's a strong contrast here. But now, what we are now, we used to be wandering like sheep, but now we have returned to the Lord. There's something that that has been done to us this is another word to describe repentance. God gave us the grace, now we can finally turn from our sin. We've returned to God by God. And Peter's readers were all like lost sheep before they were saved by God. And he says, you are, we will return back to the shepherd and guardian. In the midst of our pain and suffering, Peter reminds us that God is watching over us, that he is our guardian. Why did he do this? Why does he do this for us? Why is he a guardian? It's because he loves us. He's our good shepherd. He's our guardian. Isaiah 53 describes as a side as willing to die for their sheep. And in John chapter 10, it tells us that Jesus is a shepherd that cares for sheep. And Jesus cares for you and I today. We, are, we need to continually trust in this good shepherd 
He is our shepherd because we can recognize his voice. He is our guide. He's our guardian. It's not just some theoretical thing, but it's practical theology. If we claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, if we claim to be part of God's flock, then we need to follow his words, mainly the word of God in Scripture. Jesus cares for us like a guardian. As again, this word guardian is the same word that's used for elders, an overseer. He protects us. He watches over us. And if you are suffering today, just know that our God is watching you. No matter how big or small, our Lord watches over you. The people in this church, at the time when they were reading this, they were suffering for their faith. There were some big implications and small implications. Yet in the midst of their suffering, they looked to Jesus Christ. No matter how bad things were, Peter charges the sojourners then and for us today, this morning, to look like Jesus Christ because we're called for this purpose. Since Christ has suffered for us, he gave us an example to how, on how we can follow his footsteps. Jesus suffered without complaining. He suffered without retaliating. He suffered without threatening people. He suffered without doubting God. And he suffered without any selfish intent. Jesus suffered for our salvation and suffered for us so he gave a template on how to suffer to glorify in this life. Can that be said about you this morning? I hope it does. And I know we are all going to be imperfect in this way, but I know that the Holy Spirit will give us the ability to be able to suffer for the glory of God. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for just being that example for us. No matter what we're all going through, whether it is some interpersonal thing at work, at home, out in the public, wherever it may be, wherever the suffering is coming from, we know that you have given us an example through your Son, Jesus Christ. And may we be a people that suffer just like him so that people can see just how great of God you are, that he did this ultimately for our salvation. And then when we suffer, no matter how small it is, we respond and we react the way that your Son would according to your word. Lord, give us the ability to think about you in times of great suffering. Lord, thank you for, again, giving us your word. Enable us through the work of the Holy Spirit to glorify you. In your son's name I pray. Amen.